All right, so let's start with some uh, cultural assessment. We'll do cultural assessment first. My favorite actor is Clint Eastwood. How, <clears throat> how many of you know Clint Eastwood? Some folks on staff this week told me, wow, you're dating yourself with these references. Uh, so Clint Eastwood's my favorite actor. My favorite movie, and my favorite movie with Clint Eastwood is titled Grand Torino. Anybody seen Grand Torino? All right, so I would certainly recommend the movie. It's my favorite. I made all my kids watch it. Uh, one, it's, it's R. It's R because of the language primarily. And so if language, harsh language bothers you, I would recommend that you listen to the edited version. Of course, my wife said that if you listen to an edited version of Gran Torino, it's basically a silent film. <laughs> so it's a, it's, a, um, it's a beautiful story of redemption of uh, a Detroit retired Detroit auto worker named Walt Kowalski, played by Clint Eastwood. And uh, Walt is a, a racist par excellence, uh, a Korean War vet. And this movie, during this movie, he is transformed. And so if you're going to watch the movie, I'd encourage you to, to watch and pay close attention to the voice of the church in the movie. It starts with a funeral. It ends with a funeral. Pay close attention to the voice of the church in the movie. Um, Clint gives the, uh, the local priest grief, to say the least. It's, it's fascinating. And then pay close attention to the nature of Clint Eastwood's death and the shape of Clint Eastwood's death. I'll just tease you there. Now, when I say Clint Eastwood's my favorite actor, I'm certainly not endorsing his movies, and I know almost nothing about him personally. I do find it impressive, though, that he released a film this year at the ripe old age of 91 titled Cry Macho. Someone told me in first service it's horrible. I haven't seen it. What I am saying when I say I like Clint Eastwood, that he's my favorite actor, is that I like many of the themes with which his movies wrestle and the roles his characters play. Biblical themes are common in the movies that he makes and he's a part of, such as the struggle against evil, as well as the struggle against lawlessness, themes of judgment, salvation, for example, in the Western Unforgiven, a 1990s blockbuster. And then his character often plays roles that juxtapose human weakness with a call for sacrifice on the part of the protagonist who's often himself working for justice. For example, and this one falls right keenly into the middle of our Revelation series, consider Eastwood's film titled Pale Rider. So named, it was named after the fourth horseman of the apocalypse, which is in Revelation chapter 6. Eastwood produced this film, directed this film, and starred in this film. It's set in a small mining town in Northern California in the 19th century. Eastwood's character is a gunfighter turned preacher who defends the weak against the greedy, wealthy local businessman who's corrupt and trying to take these, these poor people's land because he thinks there's gold there. This was the highest grossing Western in the 1980s. Here's, Eastwood, here's the presentation of Eastwood's character early in the movie. Let's watch it together.
sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the me say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see thou hurt not the old the wine. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, he had a horse. And his name is What do you think? Make you want to see it? The young girl that's reading from Revelation chapter 6 in that scene, uh, just two scenes earlier, was distraught because the greedy businessman had sent these gunslingers into the village and had uh, taken lives and, and overturned their village. And, it was, and she's distraught, and she recites Psalm 23 in her prayers. Clint Eastwood here, as he rides into town, is presented as the answer to her prayers. And so these themes of justice and lawlessness are woven throughout uh, many of Eastwood's films. Here's the passage she was reading. I find it fascinating. They present the fourth horseman of the apocalypse as the answer to her prayer. I I'm not sure that's what uh, God the Father had in mind when he gave his re revelation uh, to John. But here it is, Revelation chapter 6. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. You've heard it said that art imitates reality. Here we have one of the highest grossing films of the 80s wrestling with the nature of God's judgment and the need for justice. As the weak and vulnerable of this little mining town are being victimized. Folks, my introduction is fairly straightforward. It's, it's, it's pretty simplistic. If Hollywood's wrestling with these themes, how much more does it make sense that the church should be wrestling with these themes? In fact, the church's work for justice might be the strongest apologetic that we can offer. As people are increasingly wanting to know not what we believe primarily, but who we are defending. What are we fighting for? Let's say that again. As I go out into the community and do my best to share my faith, I find that people are not primarily interested in what I believe, but whom I'm defending, what I am fighting for. And it's not that what I believe doesn't matter, but in the cultural climate in which we live, and it's one of uh, tribalism, where everybody's got some, a cause that they're fighting for. It's important that the church understand our role in representing Christ in his passions 
in the community. You may have noticed on your way in this morning that uh, some of our volunteers are wearing Care Center t-shirts. It's to bring uh, emphasis to the coat drive which is going on. What are we fighting for? I'm afraid that suburbanites, which we are, right, are primarily focused on what is entertaining us rather than whom are we called to defend. In fact, in lots of Eastwood's movies, uh, take the Dirty Harry series, he plays the role of a hero who delivers justice to the oppressed without regard for his own safety. It was a vigilante series. In this, in this case, he's a cop who without regard for his own safety defends the oppressed, addresses evil in the community, and it sells. It sells because everyone has an inner sense that evil ought not to be tolerated. Everybody has that inner sense. Hollywood has that inner sense. They know how to sell box office tickets because we all have an inner sense that evil should not be tolerated and that someone, someone must stand and deliver. Hmm. I wonder who that would be. I wonder who might be able to deliver the weak and oppressed from evil in the world. I wonder who can secure justice for humanity. Long before Eastwood's artistic interpretation of the fourth horseman of the apocalypse, the apostle John asks, wrestles with much the same question, albeit in a very, very different scenario, a different environment. He's caught up before the throne of God. He's in heaven as he's wrestling and he's, he's overwhelmed with the situation that he finds himself in. Turn with me, if you're not already there, to Revelation chapter 5 and your copy of the scripture. Follow us along as, as John finds out there is one who can stand and deliver. There's a worthy one, a qualified one, a capable one to address the lawlessness and sinfulness in the world and to protect victims, the oppressed, as you're turning there, let me give you a quick overview of, of these first few chapters of the book of Revelation. Uh, several people have asked me, gosh, you're flying through this. And it's true, you'll need to be reading ahead. In Revelation 1, John sees the glorified Christ, high and lifted up. He's in a white robe. He's holding in his right hand seven stars. He's standing among seven golden lampstands. We learn soon after in Revelation 1, the seven stars are these angelic messengers he's getting ready to send out. The seven lampstands are seven specific churches in Asia Minor that he has a message for. And he's got this double-edged sword coming out of his mouth where Revelation 2 and 3, he speaks, he, he gives his word to these seven churches. We looked at that quickly last week. After those messages are communicated to the churches. John is, he goes from seeing Christ lifted up to being invited before the throne of God. So in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, he's before the throne of God. They're passages that are often read at funeral services because they, they inspire us. They, they catch us up for the hope that's ahead for those who are trusting in Christ. While he's before the throne of God, he hears and he sees majestic creatures singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The throne room of God is awe-inspiring, as you would expect. But there's a problem. 
Can you imagine? John is asked to wrestle with something, even in the throne room of God. There's a problem. He's before the throne. He hears the mighty angel ask this question, who is worthy to open the scroll? A scroll which God himself's holding in his right hand, and it's sealed with these seven seals. That's what chapter 6 is about. You see on the screen there in front of you, the fourth seal is the pale rider. Death, this horse, the four horsemen of the apocalypse are seal one, two, three, and four. Classic literature often deals with these horsemen and the judgments of God upon uh, sinful humanity. I learned this week in some of my research that th there was a whole sermon series uh, shaped around um, references to Revelation 6 in, the, in Hollywood, in the movies. Again, if, if popular culture is wrestling with the need for someone to address evil and someone to address lawlessness, how much more should the church be wrestling with this? Convinced in the moment no one is worthy to open the scroll and take it from God's hand and address issues in the world, John wept, we learn. He wept bitterly. He didn't just cry. He wept. Here's that distressing moment. He's before the throne of God. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll. So God the Father has this scroll in his hand, and it's got writing with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. This scroll with writing on both sides, which God is holding, is reminiscent of a scroll that Ezekiel received as an Old Testament prophet. Here's Ezekiel's experience. Then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me, and it was a scroll which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. Lament and mourning and woe. Like Ezekiel's scroll, the scroll of Revelation brings the judgments of God against the sinfulness of humanity. And there's lots of reason for lament and mourning and woe as the seals in the book of Revelation are opened. But the scroll doesn't simply reveal God's judgment. Remember, the scroll has writing on both sides of it. The seals are a different matter. We've got seals and we've got a scroll. The breaking of the seal certainly reveals God's judgments against humanity, but the scroll itself represents all of redemptive history. That is the saving work of God throughout time and, time and space. His plan for his creation. That's what the scroll represents. When we picture the scroll in God's right hand, picture the plans of an architect. Perhaps you've seen those types of plans. Rolled up, waiting for a builder who can read the plans to come and open them and execute the plans and build something glorious that the architect has designed. Picture that in your mind's eye when you hear about this scroll. 
John's weeping because it appears no one's got the skill, qualifications, the biblical word is worthiness, to open the scroll, to deal with what's on the scroll, to execute God's plans, to carry out redemptive history, to save God's people. Most importantly, to address violence in the world, lawlessness in the world, to execute righteous judgment. It appears no one can get that done. You can understand why this would make John weep, I hope. I hope we can understand why this would make John weep. Even though he's in heaven, even though he's before the throne of God, even though he's hearing these majestic creatures call out the praises of God, he's moved to tears. In other words, he sees really good things going on, and he's deeply troubled. And he's not just crying. He's weeping. If there's no one worthy to open the scroll, he knows God's redemption in the world will not be realized. The lawlessness, the evil that Hollywood portrays is someone needs to address this, whether it's a little girl reading in um, Pale Rider or it's Dirty Harry saying, make my day, We deeply long for someone to address injustice. John is weeping because he's overcome with the realities that are featured in so many of Eastwood's films. John's weeping because he knows we need a hero at a cosmic level. John's weeping because he wants someone to address his tears. What makes us weep? When I was preparing this week, I was just, I was struck by the dichotomy of experiences, John weeping in the throne room. That seems to be a big miss to me. What causes us to weep? Does anything cause us to weep? Do we only weep if and when it touches our lives? I just picked some popular topics and I wonder if I wonder if they move us at all. Take R. Kelly's crimes against children. I'm thankful for the prosecutor's hard work. This, hard, this, this trial was several decades long. The investigation stretched over several decades. I'm thankful for the wisdom of judges, but these types of crimes should not happen at all. They shouldn't happen at all. And just because a guilty verdict was rendered does not mean that the children who were victimized, now adults, are immediately healed. It's not the case. Do we weep over the gazillions of hours sitting with mental health professionals that will be needed if his victims are to be whole? How about the persecution of the Uyghur people, a group of approximately two million Muslims in China who are being treated like like the Jews were treated by the Nazis? 
You know, I thought we had agreed globally. I thought global consciousness, right? Popular culture loves to talk about that. I thought we had agreed globally that never again would there be a Holocaust, yet here, just 75 years after the Holocaust that the Germans executed, we have China rounding up a religious minority, a Muslim religious minority, and sending them off to what China is describing as re-education camps. Folks, we've been here before. Does this cause us to weep? How will humanity ever break free of this type of evil? Who will stand and deliver? Who will address evil at this level, this scale? How about poverty and violence committed against the impoverished? Here's some pictures from our own southern border as Border Patrol on horseback are rounding up Haitians trying to get into America. This type of reality plays out all over the globe. This just happens to be on our southern border. As the poor don't have the power to provide for themselves or to protect themselves from violence. And if you're bothered by my offering this as an example, thinking I'm condemning America's immigration policy, then you're overthinking what I'm asking you to consider. I'm simply asking about whether these pictures move us. I'm not asking or suggesting how we might solve this problem. I'm, I'm much earlier than that. I'm simply asking what we feel, if anything, when something like this takes place. So many DuPage County residents are so entrenched in politics and their political perspective that we don't let the images touch our souls. I'm simply asking whether food inequality and violence matter to us. I'm afraid that we might be so comfortable in our wealth and so insulated by the entertainment in our culture that the suffering of others we don't ever really let affect us. I'm, so, I'm afraid we're so fixated on our own well-being that if it doesn't make me hurt or my family hurt, then we don't hurt. We don't weep. So focused on what's next on the entertainment schedule. Lunch, where are we eating? Do we get to go skiing this winter? When will COVID let up so I can go on the cruises I, I missed? that these realities, they don't touch us. And I wonder if the world is keenly aware of that. I'm afraid we might be so comfortable that the world sees through our weak apologetic. Jesus is Lord, but who are we def defending? Who are we caring for? How about lost people not enjoying the joy and the peace of Jesus? Does that cause us to weep? How about victims of clergy abuse? Just so that y'all are confident, I'm an equal opportunity offender. You know, there's a movement on Twitter with the hashtag empty the pews. And I understand it. I understand it. Empty the pews is the response to clergy abuse, which is 
the church's experience basically of the, uh, the Me Too movement, the Church Too movement, where clergy all over our nation are being outed as narcissistic, self-interested, selfish, power mongers. Does it cause us to weep when the witness of Christ in the local community is weakened by the selfishness of the pastoral staff? And there's actually a hashtag, empty the pews. How about weeping for the unborn who die at a rate in our nation of approximately 2,500 a day? That means that in just two days, more children in the womb are put to death than all those souls who died in the 9-11 attack. And this goes on and on and on. This week I listened to a, a podcast by NPR, National Public Radio, and NPR represents uh, a more liberal-leaning uh, posture when it comes to politics. I listened to this podcast for me because it's an opportunity to listen to the other side and the arguments they're making. This particular podcast was um, an hour long and it was somebody, a reporter for NPR that was on the, that was on the, in, on the ground in Oklahoma interviewing uh, folks coming into the abortion clinic in Oklahoma because Texas has effectively outlawed abortion. And so the clinics in New Mexico, Oklahoma, as far north as Kansas, Texans are, are going to get their abortions. And I want you to know that um, it stretched me, it grew me, it caused me to hurt for the men and the women, the women I should say, and the men, their partners, who are, who are so pressed by life, they think th these are the right decisions. These are some horrible family situations out there where people feel hopeless. It didn't, it didn't change my theology, what I believe, on God's sovereignty over the womb, but it sure tugged at my heart when I realized people feel like their backs are against the wall. Like John wept, the Apostle Paul wept. Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who's going to help me out of this? Who's going to address my sin? Who's going to address the lawlessness in the world? Who's going to secure justice for us? That's Paul's words. Here's the comfort that John was given as he wept. Revelation 5.5, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion. Why not weep? See. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Folks, here's the good news of the gospel. While we weep in this world and we're keenly aware of lawlessness, our own sinfulness, the sinfulness in the community, the evil that's so prevalent, there's one who has overcome. And there's a day because of who Christ is, a day coming when he'll wipe away every tear from the eye of his people, the eyes of his people, those who are trusting in him. Jesus here is referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the fierce one out of the tribe, one of the 12 tribes, 
of Israel, the tribe of Judah, the root of David. That is, these are references just to his ancestry. Christ has the lineage to be the Messiah. And John's hearing from an elder before the throne of their God that it's Christ who's triumphed. And because of his triumph, he's worthy to open the scroll. He's worthy to, uh, to execute God's plans of redemption. He's worthy to address lawlessness. He's worthy to judge righteously and perfectly because he triumphed. What did he triumph over? Born of a virgin, he lived a flawless, a, moral, a morally flawless life and then died as a sacrifice, substitutionary sacrifice for humanity, those who would trust in him. And then three days later, he's raised from the grave. So he triumphs because through his moral perfection, without sin, his sacrificial death and his victory over the grave. This morning, where is Jesus? He's embodied out of the grave, still enfleshed, like we're enfleshed. He's our savior. He's the one that stood and delivered. He's the one that took all the enemy upon him and overcame. Revelation 5, verse 9 and 10, you are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals. Why? Because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth. It's not just that we're saved from sin, we're saved to something. We're saved from our sin through faith in Christ, and we're saved to becoming a kingdom and a priest that will serve with God here on earth. This is good news. Who are you trusting to address your tears? And in a group this size, a gathering this size, there's a lot of weeping going on. Who are we trusting to address our tears, our weeping, our pain, our suffering, our victimization? Some of us are victimizers. We've hurt others. And we're, we need someone to address that sinfulness as well. Are we trusting politicians? They have a role to play. Are we trusting professors? Do we think education's the hope? After 75 years... We're, we've got another Holocaust going on in China. Professors have their role to play. Education has a role to play. Are we trusting pastors? Pastors have a role to play. Folks, there's only one hero. His name is Jesus. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's often said the church is the hope of the world. Uh, all evidence to the contrary. The church is not the hope of the world. Jesus is the hope of the world. Jesus is the hope of the world. Jesus is the hope of the church. The church has a role to play. Paul describes us as the pillar and foundation of the truth in the world. And when we stand up and rightfully take our place in culture, they'll look to us and we'll be a convincing apologetic. They'll say, oh my gosh, Christ is raised. Look at those people and how they demonstrate godliness. But the church is not the hope of the world. There's one hero. His name is Jesus. Let me pray. And then we'll sing. Father, I want to pray that you'd open our hearts and minds to Christ this morning. That you'd ready us to receive communion. Some of us aren't ready to receive communion. Some of us aren't fully yet trusting in Christ. Lord, move us. Move us.
move our minds to understand, move our hearts to affirm, move our hands to take action, our wills to take action on the truths of Scripture. Now as we sing, let us be doers of your word. Let us stand together and proclaim the good news. In Jesus' name, amen.